So it's Easter 2013. Our message today is called Peter Pan and Resurrection. Woo! Woo! Right on. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the Peter Pan part eventually. Um, so as we... I was thinking about how I could talk about resurrection, and there's like a lot, a lot of ways. Like there's many different approaches. And what I decided I didn't want to do is talk to you about resurrection from like a philosophical, theological perspective. Though that would be really fun and awesome. But I want to talk to you about from a heart perspective. Like what does it mean for us and for our hearts? And how does it transform us? Right? Well, as we begin to look at the day of Easter itself, Resurrection Sunday, and all the events that are kind of swirling around it, like Palm Sunday, which Brandon taught last week on Sunday, and the Last Supper, and Jesus' trial, and the crucifixion itself, and the behavior of all the people involved in this situation, what I began to notice is that pretty much every party in the Bible and every person involved with the situation had some form of misunderstanding about what was going on that week. Right? As we begin to look at Palm Sunday and Jesus coming in on a donkey and the people laying down palm branches in their clothes and singing Hosanna in the highest, like screaming out, this is our king. Right? They were right in that he was the king, but what they misunderstood is the way that he was becoming king. Does that make sense? Well, there's these crowds. We've also got, leading up, we've got the Last Supper. And as we have the Last Supper, and Jesus is interacting with his disciples he makes a couple statements about two disciples in particular one is about Judas now Judas clearly doesn't get what's going on in fact he's running the opposite direction he said Jesus says of the disciples one of you will betray me for 30 pieces of silver and turns out that's Judas Judas goes on to betray Jesus, which just speaks of his misunderstanding of everything that's going on. If he values this silver more than he values the king. Right? And then going on, Jesus also predicts that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows. Right? And Peter, in his pride and in his ego and in his arrogance, says, Oh no, not I, Lord. I will never deny you. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Right? And it doesn't quite turn out that way. Well, moving on, we see Jesus on trial. And Pilate has, is holding the trial, and it's before the crowds. And it is Pilate's job as the governor to declare justice, to say what is right and what is wrong, and to make, to pass judgments on criminals or accused criminals. And we see Pilate, 
who in this circumstance is the exactor of justice. We see him do an incredibly unjust thing. I don't think he was purposely overly intending to, but it was because of his massive misunderstanding of all that was going on surrounding the resurrection. He makes, in the name of justice, he makes the biggest move of injustice that the world has ever seen. When he condemns the most innocent man the world has ever seen to death. In the name of justice. He got it, right? No. Um, well, as Jesus is condemned, sentenced to crucifixion, we see that same crowd that was less than a week earlier hailing him as king, now shouting for him to be crucified and for Pilate to let Barabbas go, a, a real criminal. The crowd doesn't get it. Pilate doesn't get it. The disciples aren't quite getting it. We'll move on, and people turn against Jesus. People turn against the disciples. The disciples pretty much head for the hills, right? And especially Peter, who said, I will die before I will deny you, Lord. But then people accuse Peter of being with Jesus on his side. And he goes, no! Three times before the rooster crows, just like Jesus says. I mean, even a little girl comes up to him and he goes, no! Right? Afraid. And you can imagine what's going on inside of Peter. Like the fear that's going on and the insecurity that's going on. Because his sense of security, which was Jesus, I think, and partly his own pride. His sense of security has been ripped away. And his confidence that he once placed in himself is so diminished that he's even afraid of a little girl. And as he denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted he would, I'm sure that the deepest wounds he's ever felt cut into him. And he runs away and he hides to hide his shame for how pitiful he feels because he did exactly what he didn't want to do and he did exactly what he in his arrogance proclaimed he wouldn't do right we'll get back to Peter eventually but this time moves on and we see after Jesus is crucified and their plan is to put him in a tomb the Pharisees come up the chief priests and the Pharisees, they come up to Pilate and they're like, listen, Pilate, and here's where the Pharisees don't understand. Listen, Pilate, Jesus said this whole like nonsense about he was going to raise again in three days. Now, we totally don't believe that's going to happen, but just for precautionary measures, maybe we should like put guards in front of the tomb. Cool, sound, yeah. We, I mean, we don't want anybody to like steal the body and say that he rose again. The Pharisees, they just, they don't get it. Well, the women stick around, the two Marys, and that's awesome, that's courageous. Uh, but what you see is the women grieve, right? I understand why. Uh, if you're Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you see your son going through all this, I couldn't imagine not grieving if I were Mary. 
And then Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had cast demons out of, she's also grieving. But the grieving, although it kind of makes sense, it represents a misunderstanding on their part. Because if they realize what was really going on in the grand scheme of things, their response would not be grieving, right? Well, we see all these parties surrounding the Holy Week, and we see how they're misunderstanding just exactly what's going on. And I wonder, do we ever misunderstand exactly what's going on? Mm, maybe, right? It, we wouldn't be in bad company if we did misunderstand. I think it would be kind of acceptable and kind of, okay, like, some of the best. They didn't get it. All right? Well, I think something that maybe we do is we overemphasize the crucifixion. Now, trust me, I think that without the crucifixion, everything that Jesus did on earth would not have been completed. It would not have been finished. Sin would not be done away with, right? The crucifixion is absolutely necessary, but the crucifixion is not the end of the story. The story goes on. It goes on to resurrection. And I think when we overemphasize this crucifixion in all its importance and in all its like theological significance, we tend to downplay the significance of the resurrection and what that means to us. We all have heard and said and appreciated and thanked Jesus for all our lives, what he did on the cross, and absolutely continue doing that. But do we understand and grasp the transforming reality of the resurrection and what it means that when he went into the grave, he came out alive? See, Jesus went to war with particular enemies, right? And when he came during his life on earth, he defeated those enemies very systematically in a very planned out way. And in a way which people just typically seem to not understand, even when he told them. The enemies that he defeated were, were sin. That's where he, that's where the crucifixion comes in. He defeated sin with the crucifixion. But with the resurrection, he defeated death. Another significant enemy that stands in the way of us being with him and enjoying him forever. And he defeated, though not finally, the Satan the enemy, the ultimate embodiment of evil and everything that opposes God and his plan for us. So as we look at how he's defeated sin, death, and the Satan, we want to ask ourselves, what side are those enemies for? And what are the tactics of those enemies? And we always hear things like, well, you know, you're Christian, so love your enemy, right? 
and we think about the ploys of our enemies, the people who oppose us, the people who stand against us, those people that are just hard to get along with, you know? And we say, oh man, gotta love them, it's so hard, I gotta like pray that I can love them, and I gotta pray for them. Absolutely, keep doing that. But in addition to loving your enemies, also, I would say, don't be an enemy. Right? Don't be on that same side. Don't be the person that people have to pray about you. Oh my gosh, God, help me just put up with them. Right? Don't be an enemy. Don't be on that same side. Jesus came in his life to defeat enemies. And we don't want to be part of the forces that he is defeating. Right? Well, now, all of this reminds me of the movie Hook. Have you guys seen Hook? Some of you, most of you. I hope you guys have seen Hook. If you haven't, like you seriously missed out on your childhood, and you should you should reevaluate how life is going for you at the moment. Uh, go watch Hook. If you haven't watched Hook, or even if you have, here's what's going on. Peter Pan is played by Robin Williams, a guy who's like in his mid thirties and has kids. And Peter Pan has grown up in the real world, devoid of imagination and those childish things. Peter Pan has grown up to be a lawyer, right? This over-serious, over-competitive lawyer tycoon who will, you know, stop at nothing to defeat the competition or he will stop at nothing to bend the truth just a particular way to win an argument or to win a, a court case, right? And I'm reminded of this scene, like if you've seen it, you remember remember when he's with his colleague and they race to see who can answer their phone the quickest and it's that old brick style cell phone so you have to like flap it open and pull up the antenna and be like, yeah. And then you hit send, yeah. Right? And he's just this weird like grown up, right? And you're thinking like, who is this guy, this over-serious, unimaginative, freaking out about everything guy? Well, turns out his kids get taken by Captain Hook, right? Just to thicken the plot. And Peter, but not Peter Pan, has to return to Neverland from whence he came to go rescue his children from the wily Captain Hook, right? And when he goes back to Neverland, he meets all these weird kids who he doesn't know, and they don't seem to know him, but there's this weird, like, connection, and they have all these expectations of him, and he doesn't understand it. And as he comes into the village of the Lost Boys, Rufio comes out of nowhere, right? And the kids are like, Rufio, right? And Rufio comes around on his little bangerang thing, and then he jumps off and he flips and right in front of Peter and he goes you're not the pan can you fight can you crow and Peter's like what are you talking about he's like can you fly fly what what do you mean and why are you picking a fight with me Rufio and Rufio's got like this really cool hair and like all these little Indian trinket looking things all over him 
and he's got a belly shirt, which somehow <laughs> makes him tougher, I guess. And he's also got Peter Pan's sword. Right? Well, time goes on, and the plot continues to thicken, and things are looking grim uh, for Peter's children. And Peter just isn't quite getting it. He's not understanding all these expectations that are on him. He's not understanding how these lost boys, like, do life. Because he's not using his imagination. He's not there with them. They, like, go to eat dinner, and there's nothing on their plates or in their bowls, but they are scarfing. You know what I mean? They're like, in a home. And they're eating all this... That was a good demonstration, right? <laughs> uh, they're eating all this imaginary food, and he's looking at him like, you guys are idiots. What are you doing? Why are you trying to share it with me? And they're like, eat. It's good, Peter. Right? And they're trying to get him to just believe, to just use his imagination, to just step outside of his little lawyer box that he locked himself into. Right? Well, he and Rufio kind of like going at it with their words. And he's kind of not really stepping into it, really. But this moment of, you know, clarity comes, I guess. And he decides to use his imagination. And as they're kind of going at it with their words, at one point, he becomes the pan. Because he scoops in his bowl, a spoonful of nothing, and he flicks it at Rufio's face, and blue and red whipped cream hit him in the face. Nothing was on the spoon, and he flicked a whole lot of something into his face. He was playing along. He was remembering this past that had long been forgotten. And then all of a sudden, he could fly, and he could crow, and he could fight. Right? And I remember this one scene, like this one little black kid who's super cute, and he's probably like the youngest black boy. No, the youngest lost boy. <laughs> he, he was also the youngest black boy. There were a couple of them. Remember the big chubby one? I love it. Uh, so anyway, Peter's like kneeling down, and nobody believes in him, Right? And the lost boy, like, comes up and takes off his glasses and, like, looks at them and they're weird. And he starts stretching his face and getting rid of all the wrinkles and all this stuff. And he's, like, trying to see in this man Peter Pan. And he smushes his face back and he goes, the best line of the whole movie, he goes, oh, There you are, Peter! Right? And then all of a sudden, like, the lost boys gradually begin believing in the pan. He's back. He's been gone for so long, and he promised that he would never grow up. But here's the pan. And when the little boy does that to Peter's face, and he goes, there you are, Peter. I imagine that's what it was like when Jesus came back, and he came to Peter, the one who denied him. The one who in his arrogance promised, I will never deny you even if I have to die. But then a little girl comes up threatening 
death or something. And he denies Jesus and runs away for the hills. And Peter is filled with like all kinds of shame and this guilt. And Jesus comes to erase the shame. To erase all the damage that had been done. And Peter is so like inward and vulnerable and like self-pity and all this stuff. And I just imagine that Jesus comes up to Peter and goes, There you are, Peter! You're just who I created you to be. Right? And John 21 verse 15 records of how Jesus comes up to him and says, not calling him Peter, but calling him Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he's like covered in all this shame. And he goes, you know, I love you. And he's like, well, then feed my sheep. And then again, he says it. And he goes, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he goes, you, okay, you know I love you. And as he's doing this, like something is happening inside of Peter. And this resurrection power that Jesus just accomplished by coming out of the grave is like being infused into Peter's life. And he says one more time. Just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he goes, you know I do, Lord. He goes, well then feed my sheep. And it says that John, the apostle John, was nearby. And John, I imagine, is kind of getting like indignant, like, how can he join us again? How could he be with us? Because, like, he denied you, and that's totally unchristian. So he can't be in our group anymore. We, like, kicked him out of our club, okay? And Jesus says to John, if I intend for Peter to be here because, like, I'm doing something with his life, then he's going to be here until I come back. And what I imagine is happening in all this is that Jesus always understood what the resurrection is about. I think the parties of heaven always understood what the resurrection was about. And everybody else seems to not understand. Because as Jesus went into, into the tomb and people are grieving and running for the hills and denying him and covering themselves with shame, heaven is like just peeking over being like, I'll give you to the count of three. Right? And poof, out of the tomb. It was not a surprise to the angels or anybody in heaven. It was not a surprise to Jesus that this was the end result. But everybody else seems so confused and lost. And what's happening is that something dead goes into the tomb. And something really alive comes out. And as Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's like inviting him to come out of this like shameful shell. And inviting him to... No longer be Simon, son of John, but to be Peter, who I called you to be. 
He's taken all those things, the shame and the fear and the guilt and the denial and everything associated with that, including his old name, Simon. And he's putting that in the tomb. And what's emerging is Peter. And I just imagine Jesus like holding his face going, there you are, Peter. You're exactly who I created you to be. I don't need you to be John, and I don't need you to be James. I don't need you to be anybody else but Peter. And now I'm reinstating you as an apostle so that you can go out into the world and be Peter, who I made you to be. Re-enlivened with your imagination, remembering what you once were, putting away all this shame, shoving it in the tomb with all the dead stuff. And being resurrected and going out and telling people about it. That sounds pretty awesome, right? Well, I hope he does that for us. Oh, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for Easter. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the hope that covers up our shame and our fear and our sins. God, let us not forget the power of the resurrection and what it means for our lives. God, let us just smile and be lifted up when you hold our face and you go, there you are. You're just who I created you to be. So God, fill us up with your Holy Spirit, which is the resurrection power. Let us go into the world. And do everything you've intended us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.